celebrity Let your weary mind be free And someone kind of famous who you can't see It's time for sleeping with celebrity Hello sleepyheads and welcome to Sleeping with Celebrities. I'm John Moe. I'm glad you're here. Here on this audio program, we invite our friends to step out of the limelight and step into the nightlight. On this show, for one bedtime, as you may know, I don't want them to bring their A game, but rather their Z game. It's a show where you can sleep, you can simply relax, you can take down the tension whilst you work and listen on headphones. You can take a break from all the intensity. Just ahead, we'll be sleeping with John Ross Bowie, and he's going to talk with me about making bread. Before all that, I invite you to settle in and get comfortable while I tell you about another show on the Maximum Fun Network. Oh No, Ross and Carrie is a podcast about two friends investigating fringe science, spirituality, and claims of the paranormal. The catch is, they actually do all the stuff themselves. The hosts, Ross and Carrie, have had their chakras cleared, their auras cleansed, their ears candled, and their colons irrigated. They've joined ghost hunts, attended flat-earth meetups, and enrolled in exorcist school. And they've even joined a few mysterious religions you've definitely heard of. The show also features interviews with experts, heartfelt conversations with believers, and even some nail-biting confrontations with fringe healers. The New York Times called Ono, oh Ross, and Carrie wry and revealing, the Guardian said it's very funny, but also journalistic. And Vulture says Ross and Carey have an expert journalistic eye. One eye that they share between them, evidently. It's Oh No, Ross and Carey on Maximum Fun, or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, for our guest... John Ross Bowie. John Ross Bowie, or Jerb, is an actor. You would probably recognize him if you saw him because he's been in over 100 different shows and movies. He played Barry Kripke on The Big Bang Theory, as well as Jimmy DeMeo on Speechless, opposite Minnie Driver. If you bumped into Jerb in Los Angeles, you might do a double take or ask him, wait, do we know one another? Did you coach my kid in soccer? Because he is just that friendly and ordinary guy looking. In fact, he hosts his own podcast called Household Faces, where he interviews character actors, like himself, but not himself, who are the backbone of the entertainment industry and deserve to be paid fairly. John Ross Bowie, Thank you for sleeping with us, and sorry for getting so political. No, it's fine. I'm very, very glad to be here, John. I'd like to start off our conversations with a question or two about sleep. 
Do you recall the best night of sleep you ever had? I recall the most persistent night of sleep I ever had. I was in college. I went to college in central New York at uh, in Ithaca, um, at Ithaca College, by the way, not Cornell. I don't want people to think I'm doing that obnoxious thing where people say New Haven and mean Yale. Mm, I went to nice. Ithaca College, and I feel, uh, and I'm proud of that, but I, I want to make that clear. It's a very green, verdant environment, very... Um, uh, unusual for me because I grew up in New York City, and the first year I was at Ithaca, my my allergies really took a toll on me. And a friend of mine said you should try this prescription allergy pill, and I said okay. So I took it one night, and I slept very deeply for nine hours, mm -hmm. and then I woke up and I went to an eight a.m. poetry class where I had a lot of trouble focusing. And then I came back to my room and I fell asleep again. And while I was sleeping that morning, having my mid-morning nap, I had a dream where I was really, really tired and was looking for a place to take a nap. That was the most persistent night of sleep I've ever gotten. Multiple but, consciousness levels of sleep. I think I basically pitched Inception 20 years before the film was made. Hmm, prescient. Do you always sleep in the same position? Always on my back, um, because otherwise said back will start to hurt. I've had, um, I've had back issues for a lot of my life, um, so yeah, I, I sleep on my back and I, I snore a little bit because of that, but I very often wake up in the exact same position in which I drifted off. Were you normally able to concentrate for an 8 a.m. poetry class? I was. I had a very, very dynamic teacher named Kevin Murphy, but not the Kevin Murphy from Mystery Science Theater, although that would have been awesome. Um, poetry instructor. He was, but the Kevin Murphy who taught at Ithaca College was very dynamic, very interesting. Um, it was an intro to poetry class. I'm not sure why I took it because as an English major, I don't think I had to take any intro classes, but I did, and I'm glad I did because we did a little Wordsworth, we did a little Theodore Retke, we went all over the place. Did you, was it about writing poems or just reading poems and then having discussions? It was about reading poems, although I did also take a poetry writing class, and the product of that class sits locked away in this house, never to be found. But yeah, I took a poetry writing seminar my sophomore year of college and wrote some, some real garbage. Mm. When you would read your poems, did you read them in that poetry reading voice? You mean where I did this, where my cadence was suddenly very halted and That's contrived. Occasionally, it was sort of pre-slam. Um, oh. I'm 52, so the idea of poetry as a as a widespread performance medium wasn't quite yet in the zeitgeist. There were guys who would read out loud, certainly, and I had seen some of them. Um, but 
um, as far as poetry as performance medium, it wasn't as pervasive as it became just a few years later, particularly in New York City. But yes, you find yourself speaking in a sort of halted, strange cadence where the pauses are dictated not by logic, but by something else. Mm. Uh, one more question about poetry, because I know we we need to talk about bread. Bread must be discussed. Did you ever write poems about being asleep, or conversely, write poems whilst sleeping? I definitely wrote a poem about being exhausted one time, and I'm probably the only college sophomore who has ever done such a thing. Yeah, that that and someone broke up with me. I think are brand new territories. To be yeah, explored. yeah. I also think uh, there should be a little bit more in the genre of life isn't fair. Right, needs to be explored with images of shattered glass, perhaps. Yeah, but the glass is innocence, John. The glass oh. is innocence. See, that's what you learned by showing up at eight a.m. for that class. I like to think so. Now. During uh, the recent COVID pandemic, which was based around the COVID-19 or coronavirus, um, you took up the habit of bread making. How did did. that begin? Well, as much as I abhor cliche, uh, I am still only a human being. And I was struck by the fact that a lot of people were were doing it. A lot of people had decided that now would be a time to make bread. And I had never been a particularly good baker by any stretch. I like to cook, um, but I tend to cook things that you won't screw up, things like burgers um, scrambled and eggs. scrambled eggs, things that even if they're not perfect, they will still be edible. And baking is a very rigid, unforgiving craft. And I was absolutely the kind of guy who could screw up the straightforward chocolate chip recipe that's on the back of the Toll House chocolate chip bag. Mm. And I decided I didn't want to be that guy anymore. Plus, um, I don't know how much you remember about the pandemic, but a lot of us had a lot of free time. Very suddenly, very violently had a lot of free time. And so I started, I started finding recipes online to bake just very simple baguettes. Um, this was also kind of important because shopping was so hazardous, and or at least we believed it was so hazardous that the more you could make at home with what you had in your pantry, the better. As such. I got out some some uh, flour and I, I found a package of yeast at the drugstore where I was just buying toilet paper anyway. And hoarding toilet paper? I swear to God, I was not. There was no way to, frankly, because mm. everything was very strictly rationed, um, even in a fairly well-stocked city like Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. But I became very interested in the time and patience it took to make bread. And I found this one particular recipe online that I really enjoyed 
that led me towards a very flavorful, rich, crunchy, but also chewy bread. And there were a couple of adjustments I made to the recipe to make it even more so. But what blew my mind about this thing was the recipe asked that you make the dough, stretch it a few times, knead it a few times, but then put it in the fridge for a cold rise, which delays the 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 regular rise of bread mm. and lets the yeast and the sugar ferment a little bit more and gives you a richer flavor and i loved that i could put it to bed almost in the fridge it would sit there grow over 12 hours slowly and then i'd have this enormous bubble of dough the next morning that could be made into three very tasty baguettes provided everything had been mixed properly the night before. Now, are these full-length baguettes as might stick out of the top of a shopping bag along with some leafy celery in a television show or movie? No. Or are they demi-baguettes? They are demi-baguettes. The baguettes that you're speaking of, the prop baguettes, the yes. production design baguettes would require a larger oven than the one I have. Wow. But if I take one large ball of dough, cut it into three rectangles, let those rectangles sit for 30 to 45 minutes, and then elongate them, I have three very manageable baguettes that will fit in my bread box. Mm, okay. Um, so then, uh, this is something I, I wonder about baking is the person who is leading this operation really the person doing the work or are you more of an assistant for the animal known as yeast? I think I am very much aiding and abetting the yeast, but you're absolutely right. The yeast is in charge by any measure. I discovered even that I needed to let the yeast do more work. And so I adjusted the recipe so that there was a little more yeast. And also in lieu of sugar, I used honey, which led to a chewier loaf. The two ingredients together do much of the heavy lifting. Mm. Are you comfortable sharing where you found your baguette recipe? If you're comfortable with me giving them free advertising, it was on a website called atasteofartisan.com. And I have tried several other bread recipes, but I keep coming back to this one. And as I've said, I've adjusted it slightly. I use a little more yeast and a little more honey than they suggest and in fact, a little less flour than they suggest because I like those big holes that you get in a loaf of bread that I have come to call butter gutters. Butter gutters. And when, when these emerge from, from the oven, your, your demi-baguettes full of butter gutters, uh, are they eaten just raw with hands or are they turned into a bomb me sandwich, what becomes of them? 
they they are often well it's a whole process the the work the work usually begins mid evening and i i i get bored and hungry or it's not so much that i get hungry i get bored and i realize that the following morning i will be ravenous so i plan ahead and i begin to make bread and i measure out the flour and the water and the yeast and the honey and a little bit of the salt and i use water that has been warmed ever so slightly in the microwave so it's not hot by any stretch but it's definitely higher than room temperature to further activate the yeast and i make sure there's a nice layer of foam on top of the water and yeast mixture i pour that into the flour add the honey add the salt mix that up and then comes the very satisfying act of pulling the 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 dough as far as it can go and then mushing it back together into a ball and you go back to it every 45 minutes for about two hours 90 minutes or so and then and only then do you cover it and put it in the refrigerator Ideally, you give it 12 hours. I have found that when I skimp or when I try to rush it, it doesn't work as well. It doesn't rise as valiantly in the oven. And I think that's one of the things that drew people to the act during the pandemic is that it requires time, which we all suddenly had in abundance. So you take, you had a question. Well, yeah. So, so John, you're you are a professional actor um, in Hollywood. I'm wondering if you could do. I don't know if it's Bob Ross or a character like Bob Ross, possibly a character of your own imagining, but inspired by Bob Ross for legal reasons, not Bob Ross. And walk us through as people begin to drift off to sleep here. Let's send them off to sleep with an a how-to of step-by-step walking through the process to make one loaf of bread. Certainly. I like to take the water. In this case, it's usually about a cup, maybe a cup and a half. And I, I heat it in the microwave so that it's, warm, but by no means hot. I put the yeast, usually about one teaspoon, teaspoon, but a heaping teaspoon. I put it into the hot water. I stir it and then I leave it and I go into another room so I won't watch it. And I'll take a little time. Maybe I'll tidy up around the house a little bit. And then I come back and there will be a thin layer of foam on top of the water. That means it's just right. I take the three and a half cups of flour, maybe a little less, maybe three and a quarter. I dump it in the mixer. I pour in the water and yeast mixture. I add a heaping teaspoon, tablespoon rather, tablespoon, tablespoon of honey, two teaspoons of salt, and I put the mixer on medium 
Again, there's no rush. You want it evenly mixed. You don't want little salt pockets. You want it to have dissolved and become one with the dough that surrounds it. You take that ball of dough out after, let's say, five to seven minutes. You put it in a bowl that you have coated with a very thin layer of olive oil. Mm. This will make So it the, can slide out better. So it can slide out better the following morning, but it also adds a certain amount of crispy texture. Oh. You stretch it. You stretch and fold it. Sort of fold it in on itself over a period of about 90 minutes, coming back to it every 30 to 45 minutes. It should get three really robust pulls and folds. You put it in the refrigerator, not the freezer, the refrigerator for 12 hours. You go. You try to get some sleep. You rest. You wake up. You have some coffee. You take it out, but it's not ready to go in the oven just yet, John. You pour it out onto a well-floured board or any flat surface. I use a board. They're easier to clean. You divide it into three rectangles, hopefully of roughly the same size. You cover them and let them sit for another hour. Again, patience is key. Bring a book. When they have risen again, hallelujah, you roll them as you would a cigar or a Play-Doh snake and turn them into something that is a little more baguette-shaped. All this time, you are preheating the oven to 500 degrees Fahrenheit. If that seems high, trust me, you're actually going to lower it once you put the bread in. Why do you make it so hot and then lower it? You're about to explain. I am about to explain that. You take a razor blade or absent a razor blade, a good sturdy steak knife and cut three diagonal lines down the length of the baguette or one big line straight down the middle. This will allow the bread to expand and rise further once you're cooking. You let that sit for a moment. In that time, you take a metal baking dish, not a pan, not a, not a, uh, a baking tray or sheet, a baking dish. You fill it with water. You put it in the 500-degree oven mm. on the bottom. You let it steam up. Once it is adequately steamed the oven, you put the bread in. You put the dough into the oven, turn it down to 475 Fahrenheit, and close the door. The 500 degrees is to make sure that the water has a chance to get hot and steamy because the steam, paradoxically, is going to make the outside of the bread crunchier and crispier and crustier. Can you explain the chemistry behind that? I cannot. 
I'm baffled by it. It's the same sort of chemistry that keeps celery crisp when you store it in water, but that's really the best I can do. As you've gathered from earlier in this interview, I was an English major. I see. I see. That makes sense. So you put it in there for 15 minutes at 475. At the 15-minute mark, you very carefully lower the heat to 450, turn the baking sheet around 180 degrees, and remove the hot water that is underneath the baking sheet. At this point, you're technically, most recipes will tell you, you can leave it in there for another 15 minutes. Your mileage may vary depending on the strength and heat of your oven. I usually find it is done in another 10 minutes and the crust is a gorgeous golden brown and the inside is fluffy and soft and chewy. What I do then is I break off an end piece, put some butter on it, and eat it as a form of celebration. Mm. The rest of it will often go towards the kids' lunch. I am very grateful that my kids appreciate this hobby that their father took on during the pandemic and are always very excited when they find fresh baguette sandwiches in their lunches. In a moment of uncharacteristic sincerity, I think another thing that made bread making so appealing during the pandemic is that there was a pervasive feeling of uselessness running through a lot of us as the pandemic wore on. A lot of us were unable to work. A lot of us were unable to do the things that make us happy. We were unable to help people who were out of town because it wasn't safe to travel. Mm -hmm. So there was something very soothing about making something as fundamental and maybe even as primary as bread to provide for your family. Mm. You say that this is a hobby of yours that your kids approve of. Are there other hobbies of yours that they don't approve of? Now that I've stopped using the PS5, no. Okay. Do they, you're also in a, a rock and roll band called Egghead. Do they approve of dad being in a band or are they mortified? I think it's a little from column A, a little from column B, mm. uh, which I think is the appropriate reaction. I'm trying to picture what it would be like if my father was in a band and how I would feel about that. And I think it would be odd, but I think they enjoy a lot of our songs. Mm. I wrote one song about my daughter that is called my daughter can fuck up your daughter. And that's a big hit around the household. I think nice. the key to making your children proud of your band is to make some of your band about them. Ah, I am also in a band and I find that, um, my, my kids friends are interested in hearing about the band 
and putting stickers of the band on their water bottles, but my own children would rather not put stickers of their dad's band on their water bottles. I find that is generally the case as well. With a lot of my creative endeavors, a lot of my daughter's friends are much more impressed that I did an episode of Wizards of Waverly Place than my daughter is. I think that might just go with the territory. Remind me what your dad band is named. Sleepyheads, I want to tell you about another podcast here on Maximum Fun. It's Jordan Jesse Go. And on Jordan Jesse Go, hosts Jordan Morris and Jesse Thorne make pure, delightful nonsense. They rope in awesome guests and bring them down to the host's level. For example, Judy Greer admitted to, quote, having the space weirds, unquote, with her friend Molly. And Kumail Nanjiani has opined about cat toothbrushes on the show. Spoiler alert, they're impossible to use. To put it plainly, as Jordan Morris does, being smart is hard. Be dumb instead with Jordan Jesse Go. You're listening to a podcast right now, so go ahead after this is done and pull out Jordan Jesse Go on Maximum Fun or wherever you get podcasts. Remind me what your dad band is named. My dad band is named Math Emergency because we have an all-math professor rhythm section. We have math professors on drums and bass. That is fantastic. And let me explain to you why it's called Math Emergency. It's because we were scheduled to practice one night in the early days of the band's life. And this is a band that has been together for, for quite some time now. And... Um, there, there was a delay in starting the practice because the bass player had run across an emergency in that a paper about math that he had written that was about to be published was similar to another paper about math that somebody else was scheduled to publish right around the same time. That's legitimately anxiety-inducing. It's anxiety-inducing. So he had to get on the phone to the other mathematician in, I believe, Israel and find out what was going on in a math paper. What surprised me was math papers, but apparently it's a thing. Satisfied that their math papers were different enough, it ended the math emergency but just in time for us all to consider the idea of a math emergency and give the band its name. That is pretty wonderful. Is it, it's just math emergency? It's not the math emergency? It's just math emergency. I think when you're in an emergency, you might not have time for articles. Articles, yeah, sure, sure, sure. What's what's scary about possible crises in academia is that there are literally dozens of dollars at stake yes yes it it it, uh, it really is a, a pressure cooker without much of a lid but yeah. still a pressure cooker how did the band egghead get its name um 
we were our, our earliest incarnation and our our current incarnation, such as it is, were just three not particularly tall guys who all wear who all wore glasses, and it seemed like a very straightforward way to characterize us and our sound. Um, it's uh, there's an argument to be made that perhaps we have outgrown a name quite as self-consciously nerdy as Egghead, but there are so many punk bands that have people who are in their 60s who have juvenile names that I, I really can't complain. John Ross Bowie, are you familiar with the film Michael Clayton starring George Clooney? I am, yeah. I enjoy that movie a lot. Is your favorite part of that movie where the Tom Wilkinson character, I believe he plays Arthur Edens in the film, runs into George Clooney on the street and, or runs into Michael Clayton, I suppose, on the street, and he is carrying a bag full of baguettes and there must be 15 or 16 full-length baguettes crammed like sardines into this overflowing shopping bag. Have you seen this? Do you recall this scene, and does it make you pleased? I don't recall that scene, but it now merits a rewatch. My favorite scene in the film is when Dennis O'Hare thinks that George Clooney is his get-out-of-jail-free card, and George Clooney is not. But again, I do a podcast about character actors, so that that would be my favorite scene. I... I I am always struck by two things. One, the fact that, yes, there is almost always a baguette in a bag of groceries because otherwise we would not know that they were groceries. Sure. And two, I don't know if you've noticed this, but the grocery bags that they use for film production are visibly much sturdier than the grocery bags that you get at the grocery store. They use these things that are made of sort of a very firm synthetic muslin and they, they, they bounce back very quickly from being folded. And as camera technology grows and gets more high definition, it is easier to notice that those, those, those grocery bags look like they could stop a bullet. They're very, very thick. And the first time I I was handed one as a prop it was very early in my career, and I was very taken aback at how 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 not translucent and how heavy they were. And I said, "Can I get a real grocery bag?" And, and the person in charge of properties said, "No." Mm. So when we watch uh, a television program, if they have one of these bags, they're holding fabric? They're holding a, it's not, yes, it's fabric. It's sort of a weird polyester blend um, of, of incredibly sturdy beige stuff that will stand up to repeated usage in a way that a grocery bag would not. So this is the sort of thing that will just be in a prop house sitting there getting ready to be used for literally decades. Mm. 
but yeah, I would encourage you to notice um, when people have groceries on TV shows, how sturdy the bags are. Mm. You host, as we've talked about, a, a podcast about character actors. Who among the character actors who are you might have covered or you're seeking to cover or that you're familiar with, what familiar Hollywood faces do you think would be the best at baking three baguettes? That's an excellent question. I think I've gotten to work with a lot of people who give the energy of very, very positive baker. Mm. Alfred Molina leaps to mind because he plays painters so often. Mm-hmm. And those are very, very precise crafts. Um, I think that Martha Plimpton is actually, in fact, a baker. Maybe I'm remembering that wrong. Um, as far as character actors who are no longer with us, I bet Jack Elam made a fantastic baguette. Mm. You remember Jack Elam? He was the t- tall, tall west, tall actor. Did a lot of westerns. Had a a very striking lazy eye. Uh, he he worked predominantly in westerns in the sixties and early seventies before dying way too young. He's in the very famous opening sequence of Once Upon a Time in the West. Okay, Jack Elam. Jack Elam could do it. Speaking of actors no longer with us, um, Raul Julia. What kind of baker do you think he would be? Oh, I think he would be... His family was from Puerto Rico, and uh, I feel that he he would make... um, I can't remember what it's called. There's a a delicious sweet bread that that you can get in in Puerto Rican-owned bakeries in New York. The name escapes me right now, but... um, uh, and I, I say this with the full knowledge that as someone of Scottish heritage, I make an excellent shortbread. Mm, uh, I, see. Uh, I realize this sounds like a sweeping ethnic generalization, and I don't mean it as such, but I bet in his day he he made, you know what, pause a second. I'm going to look this up. All right. Mallorca. Pan de Mallorca. Um, mm. Yeah. Um, it's a very, they're like these sweet bread rolls. Very, very good. And I bet Raul Julia made a, a really impressive pandemiorca. Mm. As a Norwegian American, I make an excellent dry flavorless fish. Oh, that's wonderful. That's excellent too. Is it a lake fish? Because you do live in Minnesota and there are a number of lakes. Yeah, there's. I can make a lake fish. I can make a, a flavorless cod. If you soak it in lye long enough and leave it to uh, dry in the sun, it could be almost anything. It doesn't even have to be a fish. My son got Iceland for a school project on countries, mm-hmm. and he made these chocolate-covered cinnamon rolls with a little bit of my help, but it was predominantly his his effort. He made these chocolate-covered cinnamon rolls. I can't remember what they're called, but they were excellent, and they were an absolute highlight of his uh, 
International Multicultural Day at his school. Um, mm. And you would think, ooh, chocolate-covered cinnamon roll, that's one ingredient too many, but they were fantastic. And it was wonderful to see my son take up the baking mantle for a brief period of time. I just supervised. I didn't intrude too much. I just was the person who stepped in and made sure that it was a teaspoon of salt, not a tablespoon of salt, which, of course, can make all the difference. It can make all the difference. Uh, would you be interested in sharing your shortbread recipe? I know we're talking about regular size bread, but your shortbread recipe? I absolutely would. I found a great one online. My mother used to make shortbread when I was a little kid, and it smells like Christmas to me. My mother, rest her soul, was a limited cook, mm. um, but she did uh, inspire a certain degree of interest in it. What I have taken to do is is very labor-intensive, but again, it was something that I started doing during the pandemic where everyone had a surplus of time. I found a brown butter shortbread recipe online that is pretty spectacular. Now, the thing with brown butter is that it is a very, it's very easy to mess up. You take regular good old-fashioned butter, you put it at a very low heat, and you're not just waiting for it to melt, you're waiting for it to completely liquefy and then just a little bit longer until parts of it, the sort of the milk curds that come with increased heat start to collect at the bottom. You're going to be tempted to turn the heat up higher to accelerate this process. That's a trap. Don't do that. Brown butter takes an incredible amount of patience. And then, again, you have to let it cool, but not so much so that it solidifies. You pour it into a jar. You cover that jar. And, again, it goes in the fridge overnight. The next morning, you take it out, and it should have the, the texture of your standard stick of butter. Not frozen solid, but not mushy either. That is what will be the baseline for your brown butter shortbread. The other key thing to do, and this will not affect the chemistry very much, if it says one tablespoon of vanilla, go ahead and give it two. Really? Go ahead and give it two. If you're using salted butter to make the brown butter, do not worry about adding salt. If you're using unsalted butter, mm, perhaps a teaspoon or two so you get that salty, sweet flavoring. Now, the reason you're browning the butter is because it will give a surprise nutty savoriness to the shortbread. You then press it down in a pan, segment it. Don't break it off into individual cookies. Just segment it so that it can be broken off later once it is taken out of the oven. That has been um, a big hit for the family. And it, um, even though it differs from my mom's recipe, it's a very nice way to honor her memory as a uh, it was a staple of her uh, admittedly limited 
cooking repertoire. I also make a good oatmeal raisin cookie by using, I found a recipe online for very chewy ones where you use both brown sugar and molasses, even though that sounds a little redundant. The brown sugar and molasses together makes for a very chewy center. The key thing also is to use more cinnamon than they suggest and a dash of nutmeg. Mm. You get a very flavorful cookie that way. Now, this is important. If you, you, if you make the cookies too big, they will be, in fact, too soft, and you do want them cooked all the way through. But I have found that a two-inch in diameter uh, cookie that goes into the oven will be a two-and-a-half-inch perfectly cooked oatmeal raisin cookie. Now, the oatmeal raisin cookie itself, a divisive treat. There are those who really don't like it at all. I am a big fan. I enjoy the nuanced flavor of an oatmeal raisin cookie. I'm not about to turn my nose up at a good old-fashioned chocolate chip, but there's something in the dynamic shadings of the oatmeal raisin cookie, particularly, if I may, the way I make them, that I find very pleasant. And my daughter likes them too. There are those who consider them discs of garbage, but I respectfully dissent. There are some who feel that the raisin is deceptive, that they were expecting chocolate only to find the raisin. I think if you look closely enough before you put it in your mouth, you'll find there's a few things that are unusual. A a raisin simply doesn't... Look, if you eat a cookie in the dark, you're taking your life in your hands regardless. But in a well-lit room, they are visually very distinct. I think if you're sitting in the dark eating cookies, there's several questions that that beg the asking. I think there's a lot of stuff going on that neither a raisin nor a chocolate chip are going to solve. Now, uh, unfortunately, I forgot to wish you a happy Bastille Day as we talk about baguettes. We're recording this episode on Bastille Day, which is, of course, when the French rose up to fight for the right to eat chewier and crispier baguettes. So happy Bastille Day. And also with you. Now, John, a lot of people during the pandemic baked sourdough bread. They had their sourdough starters that became anthropomorphized and regarded as pets or even human friends because we all went bananas. I I heard someone refer to a sourdough starter as Tamagotchi for 30-somethings. Did you ever take up the sourdough mantle in your baking efforts? I have to admit that I have tried Irish soda. I have made challah. I have made a very successful rye bread with just the right amount of caraway seeds, but I have yet to move ahead to sourdough as I've always viewed that as advanced placement bread making and I'm still just in an honors class. I have a friend with a sourdough starter down in Orange County and perhaps I will pick up a small chunk of it. I remember that it was, I feel like, yes, it's Connor's gift to Logan in the pilot of Succession. He brings he brings a sourdough starter as a. Uh, it's actually a brilliant screenwriting uh, uh, moment. It's a way to find out 
how each of these characters feel about Logan is to have them pick out a gift for his birthday. It's it's a it's a phenomenal way to develop character in a couple of deft strokes. And Connor, who is on the brink of being a complete libertarian doomsday prepper, brings his father what is ultimately a very thoughtful gift, but just not for a guy like Logan Roy, brings him a sourdough starter, which is very quickly set aside and and never mentioned again throughout the show's four seasons. Uh, we had the author Neil Gaiman on this program. And, oh, wow. And and he's a sourdoughman. So if, uh, if you, and he makes television programs. And once people figure out that actors should be paid decent wages and you're making television shows again, um, you could maybe get some sourdough starter from Neil Gaiman on the TV show you work on one day. I, I would love that. If he's ever in Los Angeles, I'm going to put this out to anyone within the sound of my voice. If if Neil Gaiman, the honor would be all mine if I would if he would share some of his sourdough starter with me. Do you ever make muffins? I do make muffins. I'm not a huge muffin guy, um, uh, but I like a good juicy corn muffin. But in order to do that properly. It's you sometimes have to go towards the corn syrup path, and I do try to avoid using that in my cooking if I can help it. Um, at the same time, there's nothing like a really juicy corn muffin. And as I get older, I I also don't mind the occasional bran muffin, and I think we've said enough about that. If you happen to be on a a television program or in a film that takes place in Minnesota, I have a corn muffin related technique whereby you can acquire a Minnesota dialect. Are you ready? I'm very, very interested. This is from the the playwright and performer Kevin Kling, who says that this is the, the sort of passcode, the key to the Minnesota accent is this sentence. I won't pay... No two dollars for a corn muffin that's mostly dough. I won't pay no two dollars. Say dollars again. Dollars. Dollars. Back of the throat, but not all the way back in the throat. Not like not roof of the mouth. Roof of the mouth, back of the throat. Not like all the way back, like Hebrew or whales, but like like sort of top of the dollars. I won't pay no two dollars no for two, a corn. Yeah, make sure you round out the O on the no. I won't pay no. No, oh yeah, no, no, two dollars for a corn corn muffin that's mostly dough. It's mostly I've, dough. Dough. I've overdone the dough. I could hear it. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. What are the? Who are the? So years ago, I shot a series of industrial commercials for the Target Corporation that sure. took me to Minnesota before I knew you, which is yes. my greatest heartbreak. It is um, sad. I had a I have a bunch of friends in Minnesota now, but I did not know them when I was there in God, this was oh God, I was still drinking, so easily thirteen years ago, fourteen years ago. No, yeah. So quite some time ago. Mm-hmm. But um there was a guy who was in the marketing department of Target and he told me a series of of Midwestern jokes about two Scandinavian immigrants. Does this ring a bell? They have like, 
they have like this it's not it, it, is it Sven and Ollie? Sven is and it, Oli. They, Sven and Oli. That's right. Sven yeah. and Oli. Mm-hmm. And and his, he he had a battery of these jokes about these two very well-intentioned but simple Scandinavian immigrants and they had to be told in with the accent otherwise they simply did not land they're like trying to do a uh, it was like trying to do a monty python bit without the british accent um but i was fascinated that there was an entire joke subculture that was completely alien to me and i had been working in comedy for god close to 12 years at the time um but i found that utterly fascinating he was a very very tall blonde man who um told the jokes very well ted Mm. something Ah, yeah, uh, we have to have sets of jokes, entire routines full of jokes to say to one another as we sit in the in the ice and question why we live here in the first place. You're so, from Washington State originally. Yeah. Yes. Is there, I mean, there probably is if you've got a really sharp ear, but is there a particular regionalism for the Pacific Northwest? I've, I, I think it's similar to a California accent. Um, the only, uh, okay. Yeah. I think the only thing that I believe to be similar or to be consistent with the Northwest accent is that B I N like what you would throw trash into and B E E N or B E E N. Yes. Um, as in a place that you have gone to, uh, are pronounced the same way. Pin. Have you taken out the bin? Yeah, I've been taking out the bin this whole time. Yeah, I've been I've been to Olympia. I've been yeah. to a, I've been to Olympia, and I I put it in the recycling bin. It's awfully narrow. I don't know. I I know everybody says, well, where I'm from, we don't have an accent, and uh, no, not true. Not I true. think everybody has something. Everyone has something. My son, for a brief period of time, developed a remarkable rounded California accent and he was very fond at the time of a video game called Goat Simulator which he pronounced sure. Goat Simulator Goat Simulator Goat which Goat Goat Simulator and it was fascinating um i i think the this business has beaten the regionalism out of me and my my wife but my wife is from northern Massachusetts, and a couple drinks in, you can hear it, mm. and it is striking, and she sounds like she's about to be kicked out of Fenway. Uh, well, John Ross Bowie, thank you so much for telling us about bread, and thank you so much for sleeping with us. It has been an honor to sleep with you, John, anytime. All right. Night-night. Night night. Well, sleepyheads, I hope you enjoyed learning about making baguettes and other baked goods as much as I did. You know, something I like to do at the end of my day is make a mental catalog of things that I experienced and or learned. So if you don't mind, I'm just going to put together a list of takeaways from my conversation with John Ross Bowie right now, while it's fresh in my mind. 1. Using honey instead of sugar can lead to a chewier loaf, and steam makes bread 
crunchier. Two, butter gutters is the perfect description for the big holes you find in baguettes, and it isn't gross, but it sounds gross. Three, in bread making, as in life, patience is a necessary virtue. Four, if you want to make your children proud of your band, try making some of your band about your children. Five, a key ingredient to excellent shortbread cookies is brown butter. Also, it's very easy to screw up brown butter. Okay, I'm going to turn in myself. Thank you for sleeping with me and John Ross Bowie. You can follow Sleeping With Celebrities on Twitter and TikTok using the handle sleepwithcelebs. On Twitter, the handle is at sleepwcelebs. Our email is sleepwithcelebs at maximumfun.org. Music is provided by the Winterbowers. Social media assistance provided by Charlie Moe. Our production intern is Clara Flesher. The show was senior produced and edited by Laura Swisher. Swish. This is a production of Maximum Fun and Papa Chick. I'm John Moe. Night night. Maximum Fun. A worker owned network of artist owned shows. Supported directly by you.